Welcome, everyone, to our Every Other Thursday podcast, where we cover the wide world of food service and hospitality. Our hosts cover both the relevant news of the moment and we invite key industry experts in for conversations that are informative, enlightening, and entertaining. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 40 to 50 minute conversation presented bi weekly by Tabletop Journal. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Welcome, everybody. We're back to our Every Other Thursday podcast. This is episode number 29 of Every Other Thursday, and it's being recorded the week of December 17th in 2020. By now, you know I'm Dave, and I'm the host here at Every Other Thursday, and I'm here like I usually am with Mr. Jay Alley and Mr. Greg Kears, my colleagues. Gentlemen, how are you both today? Happy holidays. Very good. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah and anything else that you may be celebrating, right? That's it. Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus for the rest of us. I love that. Yeah, that's cool. (laughs) Are you guys ready? Uh, Ready for uh, whatever whatever comes your way, New Year's and all that? It's a little bit sedate this year because of a pandemic, but uh, I'm ready. Oh, there's a pandemic going on? I didn't hear it. I hadn't heard. Oh, unbelievable. Uh, anyway, so this, this year's winding down. We're getting ready to get rid of 2020. I'm happy about that, and I'm sure you guys are too. And I'm also happy about this week's episode, and I've been nervous about it. Greg, I've told you this. Greg, we, uh, we have uh, such a great guest coming on today, menu expert and dining out guru, Nancy Cruz, is going to join us today. Can you imagine? Looking forward to it. Yeah, our, little, our little podcast got the Nancy Cruz coming on board. It's an honor. Yeah, it is an honor. It is. It's unbelievable. You know her a little better than the rest of us than Jay and I do, uh, Greg. What do you think about Nancy? Uh, she's going to be great, don't you think? Well, she's she's a true Renaissance woman. You can talk to her about uh, Russian history, world politics, virtually any, any subject you can think of. But the one place where she really, really shines is obviously food service and predicting the future there. Yeah, yeah, I got to tell you, uh, when we were able to finally uh, get it nailed down when she was going to join us, I've, I've been very excited ever since. I've been excited about all our guests. They've all been great thought leaders, but Nancy really stands out among, amongst the group, that's for sure. But before we bring Nancy on, we've got to get to some general business out of the way, as we always do. And this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. Tabletop Journal is where we celebrate the products, the people, the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. So now with all that shenanigans out of the way, let's everybody give a big warm welcome of every other Thursday welcome to the Nancy Cruz. Nancy, come on in. Nancy, it's so good having you here join us on every other Thursday. We've been looking forward to this for a while now, and you are, in our eyes anyway, the the menu, the guru expert. We love having you with us. We think it's going to add at least some level of sophistication to our show. It really needs it anyway, um, (laughs) with the the rowdy crew that we have on here. But uh, thank you for being brave enough to come on board with us today. Before we get started, I know you're so well known in the the food service and the hospitality industry, but can you give some listeners, because we have a lot of people in Europe and around the world that may be listening and may not be familiar with it. Can you give us a little bit of a snapshot of where you're from, your background, and how you got to this place in the food service business? Sure, absolutely. Well, from the professional point of view, I am an analyst. I focus specifically on food and menu trends, which is shorthand for saying I eat and drink for a living and then I write and talk about it, which is the best job 
in the world. I run my own company, a consultancy in Atlanta. It is cleverly named The Cruise Company. I'm also a contributor to Nation's Restaurant News, Restaurant Hospitality Magazines. I write pieces, three or four pieces a month for them. Uh, And I do a good deal of public speaking domestically and internationally, but always really focused on what people are eating today, why, and where that is going to lead us in the future in terms of food and flavor trends. Wow. You know the future. That's well, pretty I, impressive. I, I try my best. <laughs> well, listen, uh, before we get started on the real uh, the real serious questions, I'm a big bologna fan. And, I, and doing okay. some research for this, and I, I got to tell you, I was really amazed that you predicted, uh, I think it was back in the early uh, part of this decade or whatever, that bologna was going to be some sort of a sign relative to the economic forecasting too. Uh, what's up with the bologna? Well, you know, there there was way back in the mists of time a, a grocery chain called A&P. And A&P, the senior executives there had what they called the baloney index. And I wow. came across it. Yeah, it was a real thing. And they tracked the sales of baloney through their grocery stores as an indicator of how consumers were feeling, how they were faring, I guess I should say, economically. And so I watched Bologna myself as we came out of the 2009 slowdown. And by gosh, it was popping up all over the place. Although I'm not sure that the drivers there were entirely economic. Young chefs were coming on stream with their own homemade charcuterie, and that actually gave bologna a boost. Here in the Southeast, chefs were rediscovering Southern cuisine, and fried bologna is part and parcel of that for a number of reasons. It's affordable, it's shelf-stable, and so on. And just as a quick aside, as we've moved through this current slowdown, the same kind of revival, if I can use that expression, is being experienced by spam. Wow. Yeah. Bloomberg reported a couple months ago that canned meat sales are up 70%. Again, because they're affordable, they're shelf-stable. If consumers are not going to the grocery store as frequently, they're affordable. And they're surprisingly versatile. So we're finding spam used in things like musubi, which is a Hawaiian sort of sushi, a street snack. In Minneapolis, one of my favorite restaurant tours does something called a Minneapolis State Fair Mac and Cheese, which features Spam because it's native to the state. So... Wow. I, Jay, you and I have been accused of having a bologna index, but that was when we were making yeah. a lot of sales calls. Are you, and kidding, stuff, me? Right? Huh? Are you kidding me? I'm French Canadian. The bologna was a staple part of our, of our diet. And A&P was a New England chain, as I recall correctly. I think it started in New England. I think that that's, that that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, young chefs would insist as they're doing their charcuterie plates that it's not really bologna that they're working with. It's mortadella. But the fact is, it's, it's baloney. They just stuck some uh, pistachios in it. And called that's it exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> Why right. Why not? Why yeah. not? Yeah. French, French people eat a lot of bologna. And they eat. It was funny when you were talking about that. I was thinking of spam right away. I mean, it's unbelievable. We grew up on that as kids, and it was a financial thing. You know, that, that's true. And, of course, Monty Python sort of turned it into this, this punchline. 
but the fact is it's it's a real sort of basic food that at this moment is very appropriate to the times so well and that's and it's actually generational because like my father-in-law and my grandmother they wouldn't even dream of eating it because it was a sign of of poverty from their childhood but right. now a new generation is separated from all that and why not you know sure it almost has a sort of hipness about right, it as right. it's being yeah. kind of re- rediscovered yeah and who doesn't love bologna? Come on. I mean, everybody, everybody, nobody admits it, but they all love it. And I, lo- I love fried bologna sandwiches, too. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's true, Dave. It has, that, that's a product that has great, great demographics. Kids love it. Older people love it. It has great geographic reach. And as we've seen, it has great culinary reach as well. So. So in 2021, we're going to see a lot of bologna flying off the shelves if we're not already. Well, we are. We're seeing bologna and banh mi sandwiches. We're seeing bologna bao, bologna and biscuits. It's all those B words. Wow. Yeah. See, who ever thought bologna, huh? Yeah. A, a trend-setting product. Yeah. yeah. All right. Speaking of trends and whatever, Nancy, I, the question that it keeps coming up on almost every discussion we have, this is more of a serious, not a baloney question, talking about ghost kitchens and off-premise dining, whatever. I know the vaccine is starting to be rolled out, whatever. Do you see that continuing, that trend growing? Uh, what's going to happen with this off-premise dining and, and the whole issue of delivery, ghost kitchens and all? What's going to happen as we hopefully very soon start coming out of COVID? Boy, that's that's a good question. It's a little bit complicated because I think, Dave, you threw sort of several sectors in there, and I, I you almost have to unpack it. But but it, let's start with a generalization first. We will continue even after all of this is in our rearview mirror. We will certainly continue to eat at home under certain circumstances at certain occasions. However, I would make a general observation, and that is that we are heading towards a major shakeout in the sectors, all of the sectors that you mentioned. You know, if you look at what's called 3PD, third-party delivery, it was in the throes of concentration within the category. People were buying each other. People were going out of business. It's based on what has been a very shaky and unproven business model. So the fact is that the shutdown really gave it a boost. The same, by the way, applies for meal kits, which have been through several iterations over the last 20 years in this country. They had been through a shakeout over expansion, again, shaky business model. And suddenly this shutdown has given them a bit of a lift. Ghost kitchens are proliferating faster than bunny rabbits. And frankly, I think at this moment, they're on or close to a bubble as well. So it seems to me that the bottom line is that when we come to the other side of the the shutdown and we return to restaurants and we will return to restaurants, third-party delivery won't go away but it will evolve and there will be many fewer players as the weaker ones naturally sort of wash out. Meal kits will pretty much 
go away in terms of being subscription services. They'll still be available on-premise at grocery stores and so on. Ghost kitchens also are most likely to remain with us, but in a uh, a very much more restricted sense. There will not be endless numbers of them. The strongest will survive. Yeah, I was. I, I'm thinking that for ghost kitchens to really survive, the idea of a commissary type off with, with less expensive real estate, and I think that's that's a big part of the driver there. I think that for those to survive, it's going to have to be in really urban areas in where delivery, you know, you can deliver to a lot of people who and they're looking for lots of different menu types, and they can all come out of a similar location. Uh, I don't see it in the suburbs and so much because uh, I think suburbs, at least in Maryland and, and maybe I don't think Maryland's that much different than any other suburb. I think people want to go and go to uh, a restaurant. I do absolutely believe restaurants will come back and they'll come back stronger and but slightly different, too, I think. You know, I, uh, there's some uh, restaurants that probably needed to go away or have less units. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, the industry has been in a state of overcapacity for the last decade or two, maybe even more. Uh, so it was inevitable that there'll there'll be a shakeout at this moment. That, you know, we're talking third party delivery. We're talking ghost kitchens. I suspect that they are reaching a point of excess capacity as well. You know, it was last March, the last business meeting that I actually attended in person. And one of the spokespersons there was talking about Kitchens United, which was arguably the first in, in terms of ghost kitchens, and is maybe the biggest, I'm not certain, but very well established. And he, the CEO, was talking about how in one of their locations in the San Francisco Bay Area, they were putting takeout windows and a sort of welcome lobby in the kitchen. And the reason was twofold. First, the customers wanted what they wanted when they wanted it. They didn't want to wait for delivery or they wanted to stop on their way home. But secondly, they wanted to make sure that there was really a kitchen there. Well, it seems to me that if you have a box with the kitchen in it, and you have a lobby and a takeout window, you're not a ghost kitchen anymore. You're a mm -hmm. restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you, you know, we're in the very early stages of this, but it's going to evolve. And frankly, it, that sector will evolve in ways that we can't foresee at this moment. Again, it will remain with us as a niche, but what that looks like three years from now, I can't say. Nancy, I have a question for you. I, when we first started talking about ghost kitchens quite a while ago, I don't know what episode it was, David, it was way back in the beginning, I had a real question about how the public might perceive cleanliness because you can't see it. And uh, who who polices it? Who goes in from the state and local uh, agencies that, that check on cleanliness? I live in New York, Pennsylvania. They come into a restaurant out here. They can literally shut you down right then and there. Right. And I thought, you know, God, with COVID, you don't know where it's being made. You don't know how clean it is. I, I told David and, and, and Greg, I said, I, I would, I mean, I'm not a takeout guy. Any takeout food that I get, I go I pick it up, and it's usually Chinese food. But I just wondered how that would work out. Has there been anything that you've noticed regarding that issue? 
Well, yeah, a couple of things. First, most but not all of the ghost kitchens are relying on the third-party delivery services, right? It's DoorDash or it's Uber Eats. And those protocols are pretty well established. One of my favorite catchphrases um, is that safe is the new sexy. Safe is the new sexy. And it speaks directly, Jade, to the point that you're making. It's a question of packaging. It's a question of the delivery protocols. I have not read or seen anything that calls into question the safety of the operation, the ghost kitchen operation itself. It's not clear to me how well acquainted consumers are with these operations because they come out with a brand name. It's Jay's Wings or it's Nancy's Pizza. And I'm not sure that the customer realizes that this isn't coming from an actual restaurant kitchen. I think ghost kitchen may be at this point a term that's better known in the industry, but but your point is well taken. The question of regulation and the potential for some sort of safety mishap looms large in that sector. Nancy, a lot of people at this time of year are asking you probably about specific menu items. Where you know what's what's going to happen? You know, is it what's going to be hot? What's going to be not? Uh, but 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 kind of a segue from what we're talking about. On looking at it very broadly, you know, several episodes uh, back, we had a great interview with uh, Rainer Zengraber. He was the head of culinary at, yeah, yeah. Um, at for all the luxury brands for Marriott. Yeah. And, he said that fine dining was here to stay, but it's changing. And that, you know, what does fine dining mean? It means uh, high quality ingredients, you know, handled well, and, you know, not necessarily the stuffy starched linen type of place. Not that that's bad. So I, that's a really long-winded introduction to my question. But you know, everything everywhere I read, they they say that fine dining is in decline. But using Rainer's definition. Is it really? What, where is quality going in this whole mix? For you know, because and I don't want to be elitist, but like you know, pizza is doing fantastic, but there yeah. are different degrees of pizza. So where do you see quality and fine dining in this whole thing? Well, it's interesting that you ask because I'm starting to research a story on that subject. You know, it's the Mark Twain quote reports of the death of fine dining have been greatly exaggerated because it's been a running theme throughout the industry for the last several decades. And it never, never comes to fruition. There is definitely a place for fine dining. I completely agree with Rainer, though. It is in a state of evolution. You know, the American society and culture in general over the last couple of decades has been casualizing, if I can say that. I mean, my mom was a nice Irish Catholic lady and she started complaining to me years ago about going to church and now people were coming to church in flip-flops and shorts, right? If you read Miss Manners' column, we don't write letters and we don't RSVP, we send a text or we shoot somebody and an email. The casual dining chains removed the barrier between, to a certain extent, between the diner and the server by coming up to you and saying, hello, my name is Nancy. 
I'm going to be serving you tonight. That kind of casualization is now part and parcel of our larger culture, and it impacts our dining expectations. So there's no question, right? I loved your discussion with Rainer. I thought he was absolutely right on the money. Fine dining is not going to go away. It will remain driven by a couple of factors, the quality of the ingredients, the reputation of the chef, because frequently fine dining operations are chef-driven operations. Think about, well, of course, Thomas Keller, kind of the godfather, but that whole generation of young chefs that trained with him, Grant Ackett's in Chicago or Corey Lee in San Francisco and so on, who maintain very vibrant fine dining operations, but they're they're not your grandfather's white tablecloth restaurants for sure. Wow, sort of the blue jeans effect. Everything uh, everything's everybody's got blue jeans now going to black tie affairs, button jeans. Yeah, you know that's that's really true. In fact, the the latest from the New York Times is that blue jeans are dead because we're all at home wearing sweats. And so (laughs) sweats will now be turning up in the opera houses as well. Yeah. Yeah. So so, so how does that then translate to like the takeout and the home delivery that we're seeing because of COVID are, you know, are people expecting better and better pizza or is there a, it's okay type attitude or, you know, I think it's a little bit of, of both. I mean, I have written and tracked Michelin star winning restaurants, Dominique Fren out in San Francisco who has figured out a way to deliver the fine dining meal, not necessarily the experience, that's different, but the meal in a takeout format. But let me let me just share this with you because I think it speaks to a bigger issue here. When consumers are asked what it is that they miss from the food point of view the most, and what's the first thing you're going to eat when you can get back to a restaurant? A surprising number of them say things like pizza, pizza, that's the first thing you're going to eat. You're you're ordering it in in droves right now. Pasta, pasta, you're making it at home. That suggests to me that the overriding issue here is not the food as much as it's the experience of being in the restaurant that has been irreplaceable. That connection. Yeah, that connection. You know, Data Central does a great deal of consumer work. And when they ask consumers, what's the first thing you're going to do post-COVID? The number one answer is, I'm going to hug all of my friends and family. But the number two answer is almost always, I'm going to go to a restaurant and share a meal. So it's the experiential piece that we have had to put on ice And I believe strongly in pent-up demand. As soon as it is permissible, the the restaurants will just be flooded with consumers looking to reconnect. 
Yeah, I, I think the the one thing too that <clears throat> going back to a little bit of this discussion, uh, I was taking a quick step back, that I think people probably are more knowledgeable about food and are eating better at all levels within the food service business. It better, uh, Greg, to your point, uh, maybe better quality pizza booming, but maybe it isn't the pizza that we had twenty or thirty years ago. Maybe it's a it's a better quality pizza because people are looking for certainly fresher ingredients. Everybody's fresh aware now. Right. Aware of freshness and, right. and and eating, trying at least to eat healthier or better, and so the food coming out of restaurants, I think, is infinitely better than it was uh, when I, we were growing up. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and and that is thanks to the culinary revolution that we have been going through, started about twenty years ago. But as you know, chefs are now on board in the convenience store chain, in certainly in the supermarket chains, and across the board. I mean, the culinary staff of professional chefs at McDonald's, for example, is second to none. So I completely agree with you, Dave. The food has gotten much better. We've gotten spoiled. And food in general, I think, has become sort of the lingua franca of Generation Z and the the millennials as well. In other words, when those of us on this call were growing up, the glue that bound our generation together was rock music, right? And the, the glue that binds together, I think, Gen Z and the upcoming generations is food. I mean, you can Instagram now, you can go onto Instagram and see young people in South Korea in real time and what they're eating. It's this exchange of ideas around food that has made all of this, I think, so exciting and so accessible to the average consumer. Yeah, I think uh, I heard one uh, chef friend of mine say that there's very few things I can't get 12 months a year, 365 days. I just fly it in. Logistics have made access to various foods all around the world. It's very easy now. And and to that point about access, everything from casual dining has upgraded its quality menu to gas stations. I'm, I'm amazed when I, at Tabletop Journal, we've never, I never thought I'd be looking at convenience stores to see food trends, but right. you see the quality in, in places like Sheets, Wawa, and others yep. Yep. who are really upping their game when it comes to the food service sector because they know that people are eating multiple times. It isn't three meals anymore. It hasn't been for a long time. They're eating multiple times a day, and they're eating better quality foods. There's some indulgence, of course, but there's sure. still a fundamental uplifting of the quality of the foods we eat, I believe. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Best fried chicken in the world is at Royal Farms. I don't know if you guys have them in your part of the world, but there's a chain out here that competes with Sheets and a bunch of brothers, a bunch of the ones that are out here. And I don't know where they came from, but I'm going to tell you, you can't get better fried chicken. It, we just had some yesterday. And by the way, the, the thing that you guys were talking about, about the social interaction of the restaurants, we proved it out. Sandy and I went out for a very expensive meal that started out with an enormous bowl of onion rings at the paddock. And we had to get out of the house to go to this local restaurant that has, Dave's been there, has great food we've done. They're on our website and all that. But we just was sitting around. We said, let's get the heck out of here. We, I can make a martini. She can make a Cosmo. We can't really make good onion rings. So we said, let's just go there and have some onion rings and a couple of cocktails. That turned into crab cakes. And the bill was a little more than I would have expected for that level of fare. But it was, it was just to get the heck out of the house. Right. 
But but there's also this desire for the experience. I'll just leave it with our listeners that are in the tabletop business, and they all are to some extent. Is that tabletop has a big? It's all this has big implications for tabletop because it's so important for the overall experience. So whether you're an operator or a supplier, it's it's certainly something to think about. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. And, you know, there are a couple of tabletop trends that I think are going to come roaring back with gusto when restaurants reopen. And you may be surprised, but from my perspective, one of the biggest, most powerful tabletop trends has to do with cast iron skillets, the sizzling skillet. Why? Because it has 360 degree sensory appeal. It's visual. It comes out of the kitchen. It's hot. It sizzles. There's the impression of, I'm using air quotes here, authenticity, which looms large with consumers. There are taste implications. So, so skillets, but vehicles, serving vehicles like casseroles work the same way. And a lot of those are turning up as the delivery vehicles for for macaroni and cheese and other comfort foods. Buckets, you know, small aluminum buckets that come to the table, they look sort of, again, in air quotes, authentic and real, and they carry uh, chicken tenders or they carry bacon strips and they're down on the, yeah, French fries and, and consumer spark to that it suggests there is somebody in the kitchen who's really doing something for them and and we don't use those things typically at home to serve our food so they yeah look at what ruth chris did with the sizzling steak platter i put them on an app that's exactly right yep that's exactly okay everybody i want to take a break here we're with a great and the very informative nancy cruz and i want to take a break right now and come back nancy by the way that sound that you heard it's all the tabletop manufacturers running off to make cast iron skillets (laughs) and And i I agree with you totally but the one other thing i would add that it's amazing how certain foods and certain ways of serving transport us and I think that's part of that restaurant experience is that transport, how we're all transported to someplace else. So um, we're with the great Nancy Cruz, and we want to take a break right now. We'll come back, and we'll finish it all up in segment two. And I promise, for all you listeners who are looking for trends and uh, what the future is going to bring in 2021 and beyond, we'll get more into that with Nancy Cruz in just a moment. So right back at you. This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years now, Tabletop Journal has been covering the food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. If you haven't signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, it's simple and easy, and it's free. Simply go to tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to Every Other Thursday. We're here with the fabulous Nancy Cruz, and we're talking about all kinds of things, including trends. And whenever you have Nancy Cruz in the house, you know you're going to be talking about menu trends and food trends. And in segment two, we got kind of off track in segment one, which was some great discussions about virtual restaurants and ghost kitchens and that kind of thing. 
But in segment two, I want to uh, have Nancy take us through a handful of trends that she sees that will be on the horizon in 21 and beyond and the impact that that may have on the hospitality business. And then I want to, for all you tabletop fans, I want to circle back around and dig a little deeper into the tabletop trends, the implications that the food trends will have on the tabletop products that are used in our restaurants, tabletops. So we're back with Nancy Cruz. Nancy, great having you with us again today. We didn't give you a chance to really get down the trend road very much, but can you take us through a few trends that you see on the horizon that are coming in the in the coming year? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the biggest trend, and it is my own personal favorite, so there may be some bias here, but it is what I refer to as the sort of the decommoditization of the vegetable. Vegetables, and I'm talking basic vegetables here, mushrooms and carrots and cauliflower and broccoli have been trending corn over the last several years. You know, the side of the plate was the last bastion of commodity sort of giveaway. It's the Starbucks effect. You know, before Starbucks, coffee was a bottomless cup and it was kind of dishwater and you just sort of gave it away and threw it away. And Starbucks proved that you could add value, make money. Chefs have been all over the vegetable category. And it's so exciting seeing these products because vegetables are broadly available. They're extremely versatile. They're very, very cost efficient. And you can find a vegetable that everybody loves. So carrots, using carrots, steak, a carrot steak from Lady in the House in Detroit or carrot dogs at the University of Connecticut or carrot locks of all things in some vegan restaurants in New York. Cauliflower, we don't need to talk about. It's absolutely everywhere. Mushroom brulee, mushroom candy, mushroom and mushroom juices and cocktails. The, the mushroom blended burger project where you replace some of the burger meat with a, with a mushroom has gotten great purchase with a lot of operators. So, so vegetables are where it's at. And the more you can do here, the better, because it does have a halo of health. And I think coming out of the COVID shutdown, uh, customers will want that kind of reassurance. I think it's important, though, to recognize that Americans are meat eaters, so another major trend, frankly, will be better meat. I mean, we are carnivores. And it's always fun for me to watch consumers or if I do consumer research to listen to them, because what they really want is for the restaurant operator to give them permission to indulge in something that they they really yearn for. And so if it's a if it's a wonderful piece of meat, then tell me if it's sustainably raised or locally raised or what the grade is. Is it choice or is it select? And you will nudge me to make the decision that I've really wanted to make all along. So uh, the fact that that Burger King is experimenting with what's called low methane diets for beef so that cows belch less methane, and they've been promoting that. They did a brilliant job with their Whopper statement of ingredients in which they said, here it is, it's pure beef, it's lettuce, it's tomato. I mean, these kinds of signs help consumers to do what they really want to do, which is buy a good piece of beef antibiotic-free chicken at at Chick-fil-A. So I think that that's another major opportunity. And certainly 
restaurants at this moment, though they're getting some strong competition now from grocery retailers, but restaurants really remain America's test kitchen. It's where we learn about global cuisines, global foods and flavors. So I'm watching a couple of categories there within that massive category all by itself, global foods. But I'm watching on the Mexican side, tortas, which are Mexican sandwiches, extremely approachable, extremely likable, very versatile. I think that they have not gotten purchase here in the U.S. on menus because of the taco. I mean, the taco in a way sort of obviated the need for a sandwich. But now in Chicago, you know, Rick Bayless has opened up a torta concept. In Los Angeles, there's a torta specialist called Cook's, which is looking to franchise. These are wonderful foods, as I say, easily adaptable and easily accessible. Just listening to you say that, I agree with you. And I think it's wonderful that the American consuming public is so adventurous. They love to explore. They're curious. They'll try new things. And the comfort zone keeps expanding of uh, what we'll all accept, not only just in, in big urban centers, but also in rural areas, too. And but and it's all hinges around quality. And because when you speak about Mexican food, you, it's real Mexican food done with, with real great ingredients and high taste profiles, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I certainly agree that we have become more adventurous, but within limits. And so a smart operator will know how to disarm the customer ahead of time. For example, one of the biggest vehicle for introducing the unfamiliar is a sandwich. People understand a sandwich and they understand something put between pieces of bread. And so the chicken sandwich, oh my gosh, it's, it's almost scary. And not just for regional American flavors, Nashville hot chicken is everywhere, but using chicken sandwiches as the carrier for Taiwanese flavors, for Indian flavors, for Mediterranean flavors, because the foundation is very comfortable to the customer, non-threatening. And that allows the operator to push the envelope just enough without truly intimidating the, the patron. You know, you, you mentioned, you know, restaurants as being the laboratory or the, you know, yeah. where all these things are coming from. What about uh, retail? Do ideas come from retail or more or for people that are watching this type of thing? Or are they coming more from food service and then go to retail or vice versa? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because historically food service has been the point of entry for new foods and flavors. But as chefs have come on board in all of these other operations, the fact is that if something hits big, Korean, let's say kimchi, sectors tend to move on it now very much at the same time. I mean, to me, there are two sort of terrific indicators now for where we're going to be going in the future. And one of them is a grocery retailer. And I would never have thought I'd be saying that, but it's Trader Joe's. Walk the aisle at Trader Joe's. It is that unlikely beast. It is a destination grocery store. And they do a fine job of moving ahead on the trends. The other absolutely foolproof source of intel on the future is campus dining. 
Uh, not today, because most campuses, of course, are in some state of shutdown. But historically, they have the best and most consistently creative food service in the business. They, they have to because of the nature of their customer base. It's diverse, it's demanding, it's activist, and it's there with them 24-7. So once again, as we get to the other side of this, and we want a sense of what future menu restaurants will look like, I would suggest that everybody get themselves to a campus location and see what's on offer for the students there. I also think, too, that adventure uh, or branded chefs, I, I, in the old days, you might call them celebrity chefs, but I'll yeah. use the word branded chefs, chefs that st that stand for a particular brand. I think that the opportunity, particularly now that there's been a compression in the restaurant side of it, the hospitality side of it, there's an opportunity for that brand now to be extended into places like grocery stores yeah. or, or even campus settings, as you say. The campus one, I, I think, has got to be tougher, though, because as you, you're right, it's a demanding consumer base and it's always looking for new and, and interesting things. They don't want to have the same thing week after week. And, and you've, got, you've got them 24-7. You've got them captive on that campus setting. But I do think that we'll see more and more chefs who stand for something, stand for something specific, whether it be health, whether it be a type of cuisine, healthy food, or, or Mexican cuisine or whatever. They'll be more prominent with grocery chains if they're not already. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, it's really kind of the continuation because... 20 years ago, the the Austrian chef Wolfgang Puck sort of was the, the first in, right, into grocery stores. Even in areas where his restaurants weren't known, there was this sort of uh, chefly uh, image and, and halo. And I agree with you. I think that's going to be stepped up going forward, Dave, to where the chef represents either the most up-to-date uh, health issue, whether it's related to sustainability or local or organic or whatever that looks like, absolute reality and, and authenticity in terms of the global part of it as well. I, I agree. I think there's going to be a whole new day for chefs. I'm just looking for the chef that's going to brand the rotisserie chicken in grocery stores. That That's the one that I want to see. And, and, and maybe they're already out there, but I'll tell you, those chickens fly out of there and nobody walks with just a chicken. There's a great loss leader in groceries. Boy, I agree with you. You guys discussed that. I think it was perhaps on the last podcast when you were talking yeah. about Michael Whiteman. And it was one of those aha light bulb moments for me because I completely, I, some of the retailers have done a nice job in terms of pushing the envelope flavor wise in terms of those, those chickens, but they haven't done a particularly good job from the branding perspective. Yeah, I know they're loss leaders. But I think that that's a lost opportunity. I like that idea very much, well, Dave. And, and going down that road just one step further from my friend Jay, who's a glassware guy, I want to see the the wine company, because states have loosened up the sales yeah, yeah. of alcohol. And I want to see the wine company that marries up with the, the branded chef on the rotisserie chicken, because there's nothing easier for a, a busy family to go out and buy a rotisserie chicken, throw a few uh, sides uh, on, on a plate, and have a great bottle of wine with it, drunk out of a great glass, right, Jay? Yeah. You gotta have it out of a great glass. Mm -hmm. Makes a big and, difference. Jay, do you know any good glassware manufacturers, Jay? <laughs> <laughs>
We're going to put Nancy on the free, free wine glass for uh, for Life Club. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I I really love that that people are becoming so attuned to food and that in the home, where, wherever you have it, at a convenience store. And yes, we will be back in restaurants very very soon, and it's going to be explosive. And I think uh, I'm really excited about to hear some of the trends that you were talking about, Nancy, because I do think we're we're all ready for it. It's a lot of pent up demand, and unfortunately, we're not out of the turbulence yet. We got to go through a little bit more rough sledding, but when this does happen, it's going to be exciting and not only exciting for the operators and, and the consumers who go to those restaurants, but also for the supplier side too. Whether you're supplying ingredients or you're supplying tabletop, it's going to be interesting. And you can't be, you can't be coming with the same old stuff anymore. It's got to be fresh, got to be new, got to be exciting. It may end up being late in 21 or even into 22, but I'm looking forward already, believe it or not, to the 2022. NRA show, because that's going to be maybe the best one I've ever been to. And I've been to a lot of them like we all have. 2021 is going to be a little tricky, I think. 2022 is going to be explosive. Yeah, I completely agree. I think you're on the right track there. You know, last week, UCLA Economist released a report in which they forecast what they're calling the Roaring Twenties. And they think the Roaring Twenties will start roaring within 12 months. They're ahead of a number of the forecasters and the economists. But it speaks very much to pent-up demand, and they specifically called out the restaurant industry is as one that is just going to explode with interest, innovation, creativity, and it's just going to push us really through the next five to 10 years coming out of all that we've been through in the last eight or 10 months. Yeah, I mean, you look at you look at cruise ships right now, they're booking 23 and 24 already, and they're doing, the bookings are great. Yeah. So uh, the cruise industry, so people already have that in their minds. Right. So if nature abhors a vacuum, depending on who you talk to, one out of six restaurants has gone out of business, won't reopen, one out of seven, one out of five, whatever it is, a lot of them. So we're all, we are all in agreement that there's going to be this big burst of uh, people going out, looking for restaurants. So do you think short term that that void is going to be filled with, I'm, going, I'm using air quotes, quality, or is it just going to be people just filling in the void quickly to make a buck. Do you mean from the consumer point of view or no, from, from the operator point of view? Um, well, I think the answer is yes. I think it's both of the above because there's always room for very high quality, which comes at a certain price point, but there's also room for more reasonably priced food that is a stomach filler that is convenient, that's there when you need it. I think that's been a sort of an existing model for development of various kinds of concepts. And I, I, I don't think it's going to change at all as we go forward. Well, the reason I ask is because we talk about all this innovation that's going to be coming down the road. And I do agree that there, there's going to be a lot. But I think there is going to be this like this void that's going to just be somebody's got to fill it is going to be filling it quickly. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think back when you say that, Greg, you're right. And I I, I think back to Philip Preston from uh, PolyScience when he we had him on, and he he had a great way of looking at it. He said, "Listen, you got to fight. Uh, you got to stay alive uh, to fight another day." 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where a lot of suppliers and, and operators are right now. But the consumer demand is going to explode, I believe, in, in ways that they're going to be looking for new and fresh. And they've had it drilled into them, this health conscious. And, and people like Farmer Lee out at Chef's Garden, I mean, Farmer Lee does such a great job of pro- not only selling vegetables and whatever, but but promoting it. And there's a guy, and a big plug for him because and his group out there, because they pivoted on a dime back in March, and they've got, I hope, a great business, because I know we've ordered vegetables and a great consumer business when it was all only restaurants for forever. And now he pivoted and now has a great thing. So they're teaching the world about vegetables. In vegetables that have maybe been forgotten, like root vegetables, turnips, and things like that, beets, and the value of those. So I think the the consumer that comes back in in late 21 into the restaurants and in, in, in on into 22 and beyond is going to be a much smarter, much more aware consumer and looking for new cuisines, uh, better Mexican, and, and on and on. Yes, I got a question for you. What do you see going on with food trucks? Oh, gosh, not so much. They've kind of had their day. They're not going away. They're a niche. One of the problems, though, that they have experienced as we've moved through the shutdown has been how to manage the crowd. I'm using quotes again, but how to manage the efficient movement of the food and the people who may be gathering in large groups food trucks aren't going to go away. And as you know, they're a wonderful sort of foot in the door for young, innovative operators who can't afford to get into bricks and mortar. Yeah, some of them are serving great food. We spent some time up in Westport, Massachusetts by the ocean. There's a place there where there's a little, it was a parking lot next to a car wash. And about five years ago, we started seeing three huge food trucks show up in this thing. Oh, oh well, typically lobster roll, fried clams, scallops, that kind of stuff. This summer, you couldn't get near it. You couldn't get near it. And they had they had the dots on the driveway, you know, going up to the window of the specific food truck because there was three of them. And then they had the tables in the parking lot spread apart because there was plenty of room. But you couldn't get in there. And it was like Sandy and I went to go a couple times because they have great lobster rolls in this one truck. And I was like, you're kidding me. But I, I thought I thought it would be just the opposite. I thought that the food truck thing would explode, especially like in Southern California and Arizona where the weather's good. Well, I think they did explode, and that was some years back, where I see some interesting niches here in Atlanta and in a lot of the cities over the summer. There was the return of the drive-in movie. I don't know if you guys had it in your areas, but we had them. And the food was supplied by local food trucks. What the theater operator did was hire food runners so that people were congregating at the truck itself. Right. You, and much of this was done digitally, right? But you'd order, and then the food runner would go to the truck and get your Great food. idea. Great idea. Yeah, it worked very, very well. Yeah. Looking at the uh, trends, and you know, and I, I've looked at some of your work, Nancy. And one thing that caught my eye was a, I think I believe it was a sandwich with turnip pickles. And uh, my dad uh, was, was an immigrant from the Middle East, and so I was weaned on turnip pickles. And I didn't know anybody outside my community knew about turnip pickles, and I, I, I happen to love them. I have to ask the question: What the hell are turnip pickles? It's a pickle made out of batons sliced turnip, then it's often colored with beets. 
So you put you might cut up a couple of beets, put it in there, and they're so they're this vibrant pink color, very appetizing looking color too. So it's not to, a cucumber pickle that's flavored with turnip. It's no, a turnip that's it's a, somehow it's it's it's, it's, ah. a, it's, it's a pickled turnip. Just a vicious way to, to hide the turnip. Right, right. That's right. No, but turnips, it has right. a very, there's almost kind of a spicy flavor. Such a misunderstood vegetable. To it. If you grow up in this community and know about it, like a falafel sandwich, for example, or a shawarma sandwich, it, it typically would have those pickles in. And I haven't seen it here in the United States by and large, but you had mentioned it. So I don't, and so that's a really, as I often do, that's a very long intro to my question. Do you see any of these kind of like niche, any, any of those kind of things? Because that's kind of what people are like, like to hang on, you know, in these predictions. Are there any of those kind of like niche products out there that you see one or two that, that you, you know, that we're going to say Nancy Cruz said it first here. <laughs> yeah. Throw Greg a bone, please, Nancy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I don't know about the product itself, but you do hit on a, a major trend that has been in place for the last few years is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. And that is brining and fermenting, no matter what the product is, typically, but not always a vegetable of some sort being brined and fermented. I had mentioned carrot locks that are available in some vegan restaurants that have been treated, have been brined as if they were pastrami, for example. There are health benefits associated with that. There are opportunities for the restaurateur, the chef to demonstrate culinary expertise. It's something we don't do at home. And there are flavor benefits. So the whole notion of fermented products brined products, pickled products. I think there's lots and lots of upward potential there as well. Thank you. I can I can sleep now tonight. Dreaming of turnips. But you bring up a good point, Greg. And and, and I recall a conversation I had uh, probably a couple of years ago with Jamie Simpson, who works for Farmer Lee out at Chef's Garden. And we were talking about root cellars and the disappearance of root cellars from generating. Yeah, everybody's grandmother had a root cellar today. Yeah. Then the generation flipped and there are no more root cellars or they're not, they're not as prevalent anywhere near as prevalent as they used to be. And the question is what now has replaced them? And I think we're circling back around through the fermentation process and a lot of that. I think that there is a return to those kinds of things, that authenticity that Nancy, you spoke about earlier. I mean, I think those authentic foods that are good for you too. And they taste good. And they taste damn good. That's right. I, I agree. And it, what's happened, though, is that the chef has replaced grandma in mm-hmm. this. There you go. There you story. go. Yeah. Hey, Nancy, thank God the chefs have replaced grandma because my grandmother tried to kill me with a bologna sandwich. Man. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, <laughs> oh, to. All right, yes. That's the bologna was made with love. Come on. That, that <laughs> sounds like some sort of a mystery, the case of the killer bologna or something. Yeah. You have no idea. You can't make it anymore. Uh, various ways for you to make it. This has been great. I want to finish up. I want to circle back around, Nancy, if you can, To You mentioned table. We were talking about tabletop right before we took the break. And we mentioned cast iron skillets. And I know all my tabletop friends are out there now hustling up some uh, cast iron pieces. And what other trends do you see uh, come for tabletop coming out of the, the food trends you're talking about? What other kinds of trends would you see as we come back through this backside of this COVID and back into going into restaurants again? Anything to uh, jump out at you? 
Well, a couple things. You had mentioned glassware, and that's interesting. It's not a category that I track closely, but it is a category that I think offers opportunity, and there's been a lot of change. Part of it goes back to the notion of casualization. So the notion of the stemless wineware, which is problematic to me, but which consumers absolutely love. The notion of the all-purpose wine glass so that you don't sit down to a table and see six glasses or you don't have to think, gosh, what do I put red wine in or is this right for white wine? But the all-purpose, that kind of trend is running on one track. The other thing, though, that's been sort of interesting to me has been to watch the return of bygone glassware styles, uh, retro. For example, the champagne coupe as opposed to the champagne flute. Um, the champagne coupe is what, you know, Cary Grant used to sip his champagne from back in the movies in the 40s, 50s, whatever. Um, and there's that kind of thing making a return as well. Yeah, I think glassware is an interesting one, too, because the change from a flute to a coupe, I, I, I think a lot of those, those that retro look is being driven by the, the return of cocktails in general. Yeah, I drink a lot of champagne out of coupes that make it cocktails in it. Yes, absolutely. We yeah. do a lot with cocktails on our other podcast, Seat Yourself. And cocktails is another whole uh, subject matter because you've got cocktails that are made to go already and they're pretty damn good. And you're seeing more and more of those. And the mixology component and the brandedness of cocktails to go. Throughout where restaurants are only doing carry out and takeaway, we've advocated strongly that just a pure revenue standpoint, you need to add uh, adult beverages to that mix, whether it be a sangria, have a branded sangria, have a branded Negroni, or whatever it be. Not only does it provide revenue and profit to the operator, but it also provides a branding if it's done right. It's not just something in a clear jar anymore. Now you get a chance to extend your brand into other areas. And if you're if you're uh, Rick Bayless and you're known for great world-class Mexican food, authentic Mexican food, then why not an authentic Mexican beverage to go with it and uh, go with that meal that you're sending out? So I think glass Glassware, that glassware category gets driven some by that. But is there anything that you think of? You mentioned vegetables before. Is that, that going to drive any trends in tableware or uh, any other serving pieces that you can think of? Well, I had mentioned earlier things like casseroles, and that seems to be a trend, especially I'm going back to campuses where there are lots and lots of vegetarians. By percentage of the population, most vegetarians reside on college campuses. And so the dining directors work hard to make vegetables look appealing. You see them coming out of the, of the kitchen and casseroles in, in footed dishes, something that gives them a little bit of pizzazz, if you like. What I see coming down the road with some of these menu changes is the question I, I, I will, I'm going to put to you, Nancy, is about menus themselves. But with the slimming down of menus, from my perspective, it also means probably a slimming down of the pieces I used to serve with. If I can use one piece to serve four or five menu items, I'll serve all my entrees in one one plate or one bowl. I see more and more of that going on on the on the dinnerware side. But are menus, in fact, shrinking in terms of the number of items they offer? Oh, sure, they have, just as packaged goods SKUs have been shrinking as a result of the COVID shutdown. The question is, 
will that shrinkage be long-term or short-term? In other words, Cheesecake Factory dropped 40 items from its menu. There are restaurants that don't even have. Four zero. Yeah, there are restaurants that don't even have 40 items on the menu. But as they've reopened their stores, they've gradually added those items back in because it's what consumers expect. McDonald's picked up 15 seconds on their drive-through time, which doesn't sound like much, but their drive-through only these days, by skinnying down the menu and getting rid of stuff that had been problematic to them for a long time. It's not clear to me that this menu diet is going to be with us in the long term. I think it's almost inevitable. It's called bloated menu syndrome. As we start reopening, competition will pick up. We're going to start adding and experimenting with things. So to get back to your point directly, Dave, I don't think that those serving pieces and presentation pieces are going to go to waste. I think there's going to be lots of opportunity to use them in ways that we probably don't know at this moment and won't know until kitchens get back up to speed. So uh, to all my dinnerware friends, don't throw away the molds, no. put them in the back of the warehouse, <laughs> hang on to them. They're going to all circle back around. Absolutely. And to the flatware folks, hang on. We're not going back to Victorian ages with tons and tons of flatware, but we will probably shrink a little bit in the near term. But going forward, we'll be back to uh, regular. We got to make room for the bone marrow spoons. Oh, God. Oh, <laughs> Talk about a niche, right? Oh, gosh. This is a letter opener. We've tortured you enough here today. We're not going to torture you with the, the whole uh, bone marrow story, but it goes way back <laughs> in, this, in this podcast. But, Dave, I just real quick, I think that anybody that's interested in uh, glassware uh, discussion, a couple episodes back when we had Madeline Trafon on about how she selected, you know, yeah. a master sommelier and how she selected glassware for her operations. It was a very interesting uh, discussion that I think lends itself to, to these times. Yeah, Madeline was awesome. Yes, she was. So anyway, Nancy Cruz, it's been wonderful having you with us today. Uh, thanks for putting up with our chaos and shenanigans here. Uh, you've been awesome. You've really elevated the uh, sophistication level of this podcast a lot, and we really do appreciate it. You listen to this podcast, one thing you know for sure, there's no baloney happening here. Jay, I've got to give you the last word on that. I will say, though, thanks to all of you. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Nancy. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years, Tabletop Journal has been covering the global food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. TabletopJournal.com where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of Hospitality Tabletop. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday.